Gonna, gonna drive a Jeep today, aren't we, huh? Gonna drive a Jeep today, huh? Yeah. We're gonna do a little different. We're gonna go on that road, and I'm gonna say, head over, and you're gonna turn real sharp and go over the neighbor's yard, and we're gonna do a four-wheeler. Well, last week, <clears throat> we entered into a Proverbs chapter 31, and, you know, we're working toward the conclusion of the book of Proverbs, and uh, yet we'll be in it for, uh, for quite a while. But without a doubt, uh, this is chapter 31, is the greatest defining chapter in the Bible that I know of, inspirationally, on the New Testament shout of God and the work that God has called us to do. I don't know of a place anywhere in the Bible <coughs> that in one concentrated place goes into the detail uh, of everything that we are to be and we are to do as a child of God. And it's, it's just one of the most incredible passages in the Bible. And I know from many of you talking with me and telling me this is, <coughs> this is your favorite chapter. And I've been getting texts, you know, the last couple of weeks with people who can't wait to get into this chapter. And I totally understand it. That's very commendable that you want to really glean more out of it and get to it uh, as much as you can. You know, last week I gave you a great verse in Proverbs, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And really is the verse that we want to keep before us as we move through the rest of this chapter. And he says in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1 that he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That is without a doubt a, a demanding verse for all of us. And it, it, we see that, uh, you know, uh, an, in, an incredible introduction to this chapter as Solomon's mother, which is Bathsheba, instructs him on his responsibility as a king. And as a king, he had a job that he needed to do for the people. And as Christians, the day you got saved, God initiated a work in you. And, you know, and she warns him of the two things that will hurt him as a king. And lo and behold, they're the same two things that will <clears throat> hurt us in our work. And, of course, the first one was a strange woman. And we know from the book of Proverbs that that dealing with the false gods and the false religions on that side of it, even though it can be a, a, a real woman, and we talked about how that messes up so many young men. And then <clears throat> wine and strong drink, and we, we saw how that that you know, is a picture of the world that uh, is an intoxication uh, that perverts judgment, not only in the spirits that you drink, but also in the being uh, just caught up in the world system and how it perverts uh, everybody's judgment. One will steal your heart from God, and we saw that in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where the actual women did that to Solomon, and every one of them, the emphasis is not on so much the woman's character, which is very questionable, but the gods that they had and they followed that they brought into, clearly showing you how that works. The other <coughs> will <coughs> cause us not to judge with a righteous judgment. And we saw that in, in verses 1 through 9 last week of Proverbs chapter 31. And we saw <coughs> the importance on understanding uh, how that in the church age, <coughs> we have actually taken the place of Christ. And we, we really got into this yesterday in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 
when we were talking about Christ being the express image of God's person. And we talked about how that it all fits into, you know, our life, into our world as Christians. And understanding that, you know, we have taken the place of Christ fundamentally to finish the work that he started. And I I told you last week how that when Christ showed up, he really was here for 33 years, but his ministry only consisted of uh, a little over three years. But in that time, he set the pattern and the model, and then God took him back to heaven, instituted the church age, and now we get born again and in the image of Christ, which is God, and now we finish that work. And right now, we do the work, uh, and later, uh, we will reign with him uh, as kings. You know, there's a great story on this in the Bible that really is one of my favorite stories. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible talks about the uh, the parameters of Christ coming back. And nobody knows the day and the hour. We understand that. But the Bible is very clear that we should know the times and the seasons. And this is oblivious to most people, but in your own Bible there, you have five ways, five accounts, five stories that really show you uh, in a general sense the time element that we have that we can understand the day uh, and the hour. And, of course, um, you know, actually there's six now that I think of it. But, you know, uh, we find in 1 Peter chapter 3 where God has a day system. And he tells us, you know, uh, in Genesis chapter 1 that, uh, that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. And we know that that's a picture that one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And we know that that's telling us that man's going to be on this earth for 6,000 years. And then the seventh, the eternal day, is going to be the millennial reign of Christ. You can figure out all about the caveman stuff and the, you know, and a, the, earth, uh, the man's been here 40,000 years ago and all that stuff. All that stuff is to get you around the Bible. And then the second one would be based on the New Testament and that would be a three day or a third day. Anytime you get into your Bible and you find something happening on the third day, you'll want to watch it very carefully. That's a great key. Uh, over in Mark chapter 13, um, you, have, uh, you, know, you have the watch system, four watches, that actually bring you through the New Testament church. And you can, you know, on the fourth watch, you know, it's, uh, it's the second coming of Christ. It's incredible. You have, you have in where we're going to look at Right now, today, in Matthew chapter 20, you have an hour system. We'll get back to that in a moment. In the book of Revelation, you have the first three chapters. You have the seven periods of church history. You can trace it through that very easily. And then, of course, and this is the one I forgot when I was doing my outline here, you have Matthew chapter 24, that is the generation system. So there are six, at least six, ways that you can fundamentally track where we're at in relationship to what God not only is doing, but his coming back. And I say this again, no man knoweth the day and the hour, but Paul says we should not be ignorant of the times and the seasons. And in Matthew chapter 20, there's a great story that illustrates our work. And it's, it's one of the great stories found in the Bible, and it's one of my favorites, 
And I want to read it for you here, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And then I'll come back and I'm going to show you how you put these things together. It says, now keep in mind, the day you got saved, he began a good work in you and will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now he says in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like, an, a, like unto a man that is a householder, which went out in the mor- early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Now we know that when we get into these, the, uh, the householder is God the Father and he's sending somebody in to do the work. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whosoever is, uh, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. And again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle in the, and, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? And they say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he saith unto them, Go ye into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, uh, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, now this this story starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and ends at 6 o'clock at night, a 12-hour day. And it says, And so when the even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning uh, the last unto the first. And when they came, they were hired about the eleventh hour, received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, uh, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, uh, and thou hast made them equal unto uh, us which are born the uh, burden of the heat of the day." But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Uh, Dost thou not agree with me for a penny? Take thine and go thy way, and I will give unto the last even as unto you. For it is not lawful for me to do what I will. Uh, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Uh, is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And that's a great principle right there. You want to, that kind of evens everything out. We'll talk about it here in a second. For many be called, but few chosen. Now, inspirationally, this is a great picture, uh, and it's a picture about, one, the restoration of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to notice, there's a steward involved here. And we know from uh, John chapter 19, verse 26, and Rome, uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, and, nine, and, nine, and chapter 9, that the church has become the steward of the nation of Israel. So what we're seeing here is an incredible picture. And it's a picture that God is going to restore the nation of Israel. But during that church age, inspirationally, God has called workers into the vineyard. And that inspirationally would be us. Now, One of the amazing things about this story is you can actually break it down like you can all the stories in the Bible. Here's how you do it. Now, we've got a 12-hour day, and it's broken down early in the morning. It's broken down in the third hour, the sixth and the ninth hour, and then the eleventh hour, and then Christ comes back the 12th hour, hour, 6 o'clock. So it runs from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening. Now, these, these times will represent for us 
an actual period in history. And it's an easy formula to figure it out if you uh, ever want to figure it out. And here's how you do it. We know that church history runs 2,000 years. Now, you know, that 2,000 years obviously depends on however God, you know, where he counts it and all that. But fundamentally, whenever the Lord decides to come back, it will be 2,000 years based on how he's counting it. We may not understand how he's counting it. So we got 2,000 years fundamentally. Then we have a 12-hour day. So what we will do to figure out how these hours break down into history, we'll divide 12 hours into 2,000 years. And that will give us 166.66666 on down the line uh, years per hour. Or if we round it off, 167 years per hour. Now, if we start this at Acts chapter 20 is where... It doesn't really matter, but that's probably the, a safe place because that's where church history starts at the church at Ephesus. That's around 60 A.D. So the formula is when he sends the workers in early in the morning, that would be about 60 A.D. When he comes on through and he says about the third hour, using our formula, that would bring us up in history around 500 A.D. Continuing on, he says the sixth hour, using our formula, that would bring us up to approximately 1,000 uh, A.D., middle of the Dark Ages. If we continue to use that, the ninth hour would bring us up to around 1,500, which is about the beginning of the Reformation. And then the 11th hour, and I, can't, I cannot tell you how important, not only in the Bible, but in man's history, how important that concept of the 11th hour is. The 11th hour is always used as an urgency of what's going to happen when it hits 12 o'clock or 12 midnight. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've dealt with marriage situations that were really, you know, really, uh, really uh, in a bad way. And I tell, and usually in most cases, it's the husband's fault because he's an idiot, but uh, not always, but I'd say 98% of the time. And he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And I say to him, and I base this off of what I'm going to give you in a moment. I say to him, let's look at this, your marriage, as a clock. And you're going to get a divorce and ruin your life at 12 o'clock. Right now, given where you're at and where you're doing and not doing whatever, on this divorce doomsday clock, your life, your marriage is right now at 11.58. You got two minutes left to try to fix this or it's unfixable and you're going to be in trouble. Now, I base that on the 11th hour concept. And if we follow that here, then the 11th hour started around 1837. In other words, you and me, Understanding, if we could put all these six things together, we are at the last few moments. If God is checking these times through an hourglass, I'm telling you the last few grains of sand are just about to come through. We are at the last few moments of the last shift of workers that went in that God has called to do the work that he begun in you the moment you got saved to finish his work. And we are coming up to the end of it. 
out in Chicago at the Scientific Institute of Technology or Scientific Institute of what? They have what they call the Doomsday Clock. You can get online. You can look it up. Just type in the Doomsday Clock in Chicago. You get all the information you want on it. It's a clock that they established after the atomic age started in 1945. And on that clock is a 12-hour day. And they predict at 12 o'clock will be the end of the world. And this is unsafe people. This is guys who reject the Bible, reject God, reject everything. Look it up online. Don't take my word for it. And I don't, haven't checked it lately. Sometimes when the earth gets a little reprieve, it, it'll go back a, an hour or so or whatever. Uh, but in, in 2019, with the world situation the way that it was on the doomsday clock, which without any kind of understanding following Matthew chapter 20, in May of 2019, that's a year ago, it was two minutes to 12. The whole world knows that we're headed for a disaster. The whole world is holding its breath. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that this earth groans. And it's groaning because of the abuse that, that it has suffered at the hands of, of unsaved people. And, you know, it's a thing where the last workers go in in, 18, in 1837. Now, notice in our story here, when Christ comes back, he made an agreement with everybody for a penny. And some people are not happy with that because they think that the ones that went early in who suffered in history great persecution and they're looking at the ones that would be us and from their standpoint didn't suffer any persecution and they're thinking they should be paid more. Clear proof that this is about Baptist. There's no question about it. And it's a thing where when you play it all out, actually the people that went through the terrible times under the persecution of Rome Theirs was a physical torture where today uh, we are in much worse shape. The persecution of wiping out and killing everybody back in the Dark Ages and 500 up to the Reformation only made Christianity stronger. What we have today is no persecution, no Bible, and it's absolutely destroyed Christianity. In other words, we're up against a much worse thing than they are. Now, Having said that, here's the moral of the story. And this is where I want to focus today about the job that God has called us to do as we look at this great passage on the virtuous woman. The moral here is not what time did you go to work. The moral is when you went to work, were you on the job? That's the question. That's the question. Now, we, we have and we do talk about a lot about the mind of God and how it is so important in our life. In Proverbs, you have the process of attaining that. And you do it by biblically, through the Word of God, in your relationship with Christ, building fundamentally three things in your life. 
And this is all laid out in the book of Proverbs. The first thing that you do is you gather knowledge from the Bible. And the Bible says knowledge, uh, knowledge is the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And understand you begin to get knowledge about who God is. Now knowledge will be facts, truth. And then the second thing, once you get the facts and you continue through this process that we're going to talk about here in a moment, then that, those facts and knowledge develop into wisdom. And we already saw last week that there's two types of wisdom. There's the world's wisdom, and then there's the wisdom that has God in it. But wisdom is facts applied. In other words, you learn the truth in the Bible, and then you apply it to your life, and you get wisdom through that. This is what we try to do in everything we do here. This is what the people ministry is. This is what the Bible Institute is. This is what I'm trying to do today. This is what we do on Thursday night Bible study. This is why I take so much time and so much, uh, put so much energy into giving you everything about I can and squeezing everything out. Now, the end result of getting facts and getting wisdom will complete the circle and then you'll get understanding. And getting understanding or understanding is simply knowing and seeing and comprehending exactly what God not only what he's doing, but what he wants you to do. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's his mind in you. Being able to understand exactly in your life right now today, without any kind of question mark, without any kind of, of reservation, without any kind of fear, knowing exactly what God saved you for and has called you to do. Now, I get it. That's a process. But it's a great unknown process, and, and most of God's people, they, they, they never get there. In our discipleship lessons, I think it's lesson six, we have a lesson on God's will for your life versus God's plan for your life. There's a number of things that when you listen to somebody talk uh, or what they speak, what they say really determines where they're at with the Bible. And I don't know how many times I've heard a Christian get up and talk about, you know, I'm a missionary or I'm this or I'm that, and this is God's will for my life, you know, da-da-da-da-da. In a moment, and immediately, when somebody starts talking like that, I know that this guy does not have a clue on really what it's all about when it comes to uh, God's will versus God's plan for your life. Now, let me listen to me. Everybody listening to my voice, if you're saved, and those of you few who are here today, let me just say this to you. God has a plan for your life. When he saved you, the Bible says, and we're going to camp on this verse, the Bible says that he began a good work in you. That's God's plan for your life. He has something that he wants you to do in some aspect to finish what he started. Now, God's plan for all of you, all of us, will be absolutely different. God's plan for me will not be the same as God's plan for you. If you're listening to me this morning and your family's there or you're in one of our groups of 10, I'm telling you right now, God's plan for every one of you will be different. Not only does God have a plan for you, but then God has a will for your life. And this is where it becomes confusing. Where God's plan is the same for everybody, or different for everybody, 
you know, God has a will for each one of you, and that will will be the same for all of us. God's plan will be different, but God's will will be the same. And if you don't ever get to the place where you understand the difference between the two and how they're different but that they're connected, you'll, you'll, you'll never get it. You see, God's plan is what he wants you to do, the good work. But God's will is what he wants you to be spiritually, more like Christ. And you only do what God wants you to do and get it down and accomplish the work when you become what God wants you to become. In other words, you fulfill the plan of God, whatever it may be, through the will of God that is the same for all of us, and that's becoming more like Christ every day of our lives. And when we do that, when we focus on being something for God instead of doing something for God, and boy, that's where it breaks down. You know, we're taught that, you know, when you get saved that you just need to start doing something for God. And nobody puts the emphasis on training and teaching people to be something for God before you try to do something for God. And uh, it's a thing where that's the problem. The Bible says that we are to grow up into Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, but speaking the truth in love, talking about us, that may grow up into him. Now, everybody reads that growing up unto him. It didn't say growing up unto him. It says growing up into him. Every day, you should be a little bit more like Christ coming to the day that you're going to get the body that you're going to be Christ. And every day, you're to grow up through God's will into him, being more like Christ. And, uh, you know, it's a great unknown teaching today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It, it actually shows us the process to get this done. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, there's a couple of things here I want you to see, and then I'm going to show you how this works. First of all, I want you to notice that you and I are to be a living sacrifice for Him. Now, here's the key. He became a sacrifice for you and me, and he died on the cross, and God ended his life. God ended his life because in God's mind and in Christ's mind, you and I would get saved, and we would become a living sacrifice to fulfill what he did on the cross as my sacrifice for my eternal life. Now, that is so powerful in God's mind. Look what he said. A living shock, uh, uh, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you've been cheered by a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, there's your work. God thought it was only reasonable after he became a sacrifice for you on the cross <laughs> that we would become a sacrifice for him in our lives. To God, that's a reasonable thing. You know what our problem is today? We think it's unreasonable. 
We want to get saved. We think that's reasonable. But when God asks you and me to be a living sacrifice, oh, no, 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 no. That's too unreasonable. Well, I want you to know in God's mind, it's reasonable that after he became the sacrifice for you and me, we become the sacrifice for him. Look at verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed at the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see that? Now, the first thing I want you to know, it says, be not conformed to this world. Now, this is the reason that you don't become the reasonable sacrifice. It's the world. And because you're a Christian with one foot in the church and one foot in the world, because you could care less about in this time of being uh, separated, getting into a group, getting into things, staying tied in as best you can. You're just flapping out there in the wind, and that is going to be a disaster for you if it hasn't happened already. Because the bottom line is you think what God has called you to do with your life, the work, unreasonable. You know why? Because you've conformed yourself to the world. And the world will always think that anything that God asks is unreasonable. Now, he says, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, there it is. The renewing of your mind is every day becoming more like Christ, understanding the will of God in your life, and then redefining your mind every day, renewing it, becoming more like Christ, every day building, adding things into your life that he had. And then he says this, that you, may that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Now, I've heard thousands of sermons on Romans chapter 12, and everybody gets down there in, in, uh, in the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Everybody's got their own idea on it, and, and I'm not fighting it. A lot of good sermons are preached, and inspirationally, it's probably good. But let's look at the context today. Let's look at the context of chapter 12 based on Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that God's got a work for us to do. And you and I have got something to prove. You and I have got something to prove. Let's talk about that for a moment. Now, here's how it works, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're just going to use the Bible. This is the biblical approach. I don't care how somebody else teaches it, and I've heard it many ways, and it's good, fine, does the job, praise the Lord. Let's get back to the context here. Here's how it works. At salvation, we already know now. It says that good, that's what it starts, the good will of God. So at salvation, the Bible says that he has begun a good work in you. There's the good. He began, the good is that the moment you got saved, he began a good work in you. And you have to prove yourself in that. You prove yourself that you understand that. And you take the work that God has given you, that's a good work. And as you grow with that good work, as you grow, you will prove yourself. Galatians 6, 4 says every man uh, proves his own work. And we see this example in Acts chapter 11 and 12 uh, with uh, uh, Paul and Timothy. How that they're in, the, in Barnabas. They're in the church. They're doing the work. 
And through that work, the body recognizes who they are and what they're doing. And you know what? There's your acceptable. You now got saved, started with the work. You're proving yourself with a good work. And through that process of growth in the church, not out there flapping in the wind someplace, in the church under the structure of the New Testament, now you become acceptable. The church recognizes who you are. It's a process of spiritual growth based on the good work that God starts in you and you understanding that you're to be a living sacrifice and you come into the place where you prove that. Now, as you allow God to transform you through the renewing of your mind, you know, when you take the Word of God, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and you understand, you know, now that uh, God has a plan for you, and there will be times in your life early on where you don't understand the plan. I remember my own life when I got right with God, you know, I was doing the ministry and helping out where I could, and I was still pretty young yet, and I was pretty confused about what God wanted me to do. Now, there is not going to be out of the chute a clarity of what God wants you to do because you've got to go through a process. So where the plan of God may not always be crystal clear, it will come in time. But where the plan of God may not be crystal clear, the will of God is always crystal clear. And I didn't know what God wanted me to do, but I sure understood what God wanted me to be, and I went to work on it. And it was through that that in time God revealed what he wanted me to do, and voila, here I am. And it's one of those things where that's exactly what God will do with you. And through the work of God, the Word of God, it'll do this for you. And here's the perfect, good, acceptable, and perfect. He says that the man of God, 2 Timothy 3, 17, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There it is. And then with the good and acceptable and perfect will of God has to do with the work that God's called you to do. And when you put those things spiritually in your life of God's will, then it perfects you for the work. It's, it's just that simple. And notice he says, and I can't pass this up, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished. All the new Bibles take the word truly and turn it to Thoroughly. And they take the word furnished out and put some other goofy word in, uh, equipped. And when they do that, that's what your new King James Bible does. When they do that, they destroy the whole concept of the will of God in your life. Because God will build some furnishings in your life. And when you go back to the tabernacle, which is a picture of your body in the book of Exodus, there are seven pieces of furnishings that represent the seven things that God wants to put in your life. And through that, God perfects you. He doesn't perfect you to be sinless. He goes through the process of starting a good work in you. When you get into the church and you do the work, it's acceptable. And then as you let the will of God change your life through the renewing of your mind, the work becomes perfect. Perfect. Perfect in the sense that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. How many of God's people today, honestly, let's be honest, how many of you listening to me this morning, how many of you as God's people really know for sure what God wants you to do? You've been in flux all your life. 
You've been in question all your life. You've been banging around like a bullet ricocheting off of a steel a, a box inside. It's, you've just been bouncing off of everything. There's no security in your life. There's no assurity in your life. You're just bouncing everywhere it goes with everything that happens and everything that befalls you. You're just ricocheting off the walls. How many of God's people, and let's be honest, most of God's people will never get to this place. They never will. And it's a tragedy because, <laughs> as I've laid it out, how hard is that? Well, it's really hard when you don't want to not conform yourself to the world. It's really hard when we as God's people think becoming a living sacrifice for him after all that he's done for us, it's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. And I'm telling you, the same areas that Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, warned him about will be the ones that will take us out of the work. False religion will stop us. The world will stop us. And both, unfortunately, are married to Christianity today. I drive them down 470 the other day, and I, I just happened to look up, and, um, oh, I know where it was. It wasn't 470. It was coming down the back way to meet uh, Danny and the guys over there for the offerings. And I come by this big church who I think they bought the property off of 470, but it's the world church. Now, this is nothing against the world church. I mean, I don't care one way or the other, but I thought to myself, man, the world church in the Laodicean church period has a whole new meaning, doesn't it? You know why? Because the church is married to the world. And that's the problem. Christians are married to the world. So a church that calls itself the world church, they would like us to believe that they're reaching the world. But when you go to one of their services, I guarantee you, you will see the world running it from one end to the other. A whole new meeting today. And as I begin to lay out this chapter, the work of God defined for us in this chapter, I'm telling you, every aspect. So I want you to understand how I'm doing this. I'm going to do this a little differently than I've done the rest of the book of Proverbs. Now in Proverbs, I came through verse by verse or verses by verses in little sections. Remember I told you how I did that. But now I'm not going to do that. Now I'm going to change up the whole process and I'm going to come through this chapter, this last chapter and these last verses concept by concept. Job description by job description. I don't want to miss one aspect of what our work of God should be. So my messages, just so you know, I know this will make a lot of you happy. My messages may be a little shorter, but they're going to be a lot deeper. And I want to take each aspect of this. I don't want to take two a week. I want to take one a week. If I preach to you in 10 minutes and I'm done, you're good. Don't count on that, but I'm just saying, you understand my point. I want to not miss anything in this chapter, and I want to develop every aspect of it because we're looking at the greatest place in the Bible, the greatest place in the Bible that will define for us what Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, that he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. So with that, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10 says, 
Just a small verse, but voila, here we go. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? A.J., would you ask God blessing on the preaching this morning? Now, finally, after what, six, seven, eight years, finally, we find the woman we've all been waiting for. Historically, Solomon looked in vain for a virtuous woman. Now, this guy had a thousand wives, and he's going combing through them looking for somebody that's got virtue. And we understand from what is said about these women that they didn't have virtue. And then he finds her. And not only does he, not only does he include her in chapter 31 of the great of this great book for us, but then he writes a whole book about her, the book of Song of Solomon. And of course, inspirationally, what you have here, you know, excuse me, doctrinally, you'll have, she'll be a picture of the nation of Israel. But inspirationally, it's, it's a great picture of the body of Christ. And as you should be well aware by now, both Israel and Christ, or in, in, in the church, excuse me, both Israel and the church are likened to a woman. And both have a work God has called them to do. Israel in the Old Testament with the physical kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Church in the New Testament with the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. And now we will start our study of this woman. And we're going to look at it from our aspect as the church in the concept of the good work that God has begun in us. Now, I can't help but coming down through this chapter that he lists these things in the order of some importance. And I caught that the moment I sat down and started to put this together. And I want to look at the first quality that God mentions about this woman first. And it is her virtue. She's a virtuous woman. First words out of his mouth. Who can find a virtuous woman? He didn't say pretty. He didn't say hot. He didn't say old. He didn't say young. He didn't say middle-aged. He said a virtuous woman. And we're going to talk about an unknown word today as it will be defined in the Bible. And like so many key words, the real biblical meaning has been lost today. And uh, we're going to talk about the word virtue. Now, you know me. I've spent my whole life not only going through the Bible, but my whole life finding definitive passages that support the teachings of the Bible. And when we're going to talk about virtue First thing I want to do is give you the definitive passage on it, which is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. So if you would, turn there with me, and uh, let's look at the definitive passage on virtue. Because virtue is an unknown thing today. People, they got a general idea of what it is, but they don't understand how it works in the Bible. And uh, so I, I, I want to I show you how the Bible defines it. Then I want to show you how it works in your life with the work that God has called you to do as you prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in your life. 
Now, verse 17 of Luke chapter 6, it's a little story here. And it says, he came, Jesus, he came down with them and stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people came out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And when they were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Now that's an incredible passage. That begins to lay out for us and tell us about virtue. Virtue now we know, based on the definitive passage, will be the character qualities of Christ. Not your character qualities of your mother, which may be great. But a Bible definition of virtue has nothing to do with the world, though you may find women out there who have a worldly virtue. In our study here, this isn't about the world. This is about virtue being the character qualities of Christ that we will build in our lives through that process of proving the will of God in our lives through the good, the work that He starts, the acceptable, the work within your church, and the perfect, the finished product of the Word of God of you getting it into your life. Now, I want you to notice verse 19, virtue went out of Him. Sometimes, or not sometimes, virtue will be what you have in you that you give to others. And when you minister to people, you give to them. I'm not talking about physical things, though times you give them physical things. We give the people on the street hot dogs and clothes. Some of you have helped people with money. That's a physical thing. But I'm not talking about that. Virtue is the character qualities of Christ that you have inside you that you give to others. Now, what we have just defined in the first aspect of this, we're talking about the work that God has began in you, and we're going to look at that work as it lays out for us as ministry. Now we know we have just defined what ministry really is. There's people that think that if you sing in a choir, that's ministry. There's people that think if you drive a bus, that that's ministry. Yeah, there's people that think that if you, you, you do something, you know, that that's, that's ministry. I'm not saying those things are not vitally important, but let's not lose in the middle of service, which is a necessary thing, what ministry really is. Because you will find people in the choir that think that they do in the ministry, singing to everybody out there, but in reality, never get into real biblical ministry because they kid themselves to thinking that that's the ministry. Now we know that ministry is defined in the Bible. What it really is is simply this. And listen to me. Ministry is nothing more than you giving to others what God has given to you. That's ministry. And now we know why we define a second aspect of it. Now we know why people don't minister. You know why? You've got nothing to give. It's all about you. Your life is so problematic and your life has so many issues in it and you're in so many deep problems and you have so many things with your kids and your families and your personal life that you can never get to that point. You see, it's putting yourself through your relationship with Him into somebody else's life. That's ministry. 
Ministry is putting yourself through your relationship with him into somebody else's life. And virtue will be the spiritual strength and the stability that you have built into your inner self. Your soul was connected and sealed with the Holy Ghost at the moment of salvation when God began that good work in you. And now, through the process of the good, acceptable, perfect will of God, you bear fruit. And that fruit is the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And when you teach, deal with, minister to someone, this is what you give them. The greatest character quality of leadership is virtue. Virtue is that when everything else is falling down around Christianity, leaders stand up and lead. You don't lead because you're a great guy. You don't lead because you're a great woman. You lead because you have built into your life the character qualities of Christ that other people have not. And when tough times come, whether it be their family or the time that we're living in, you can lead the way because of what the strength and the stability that you have on the inside. It's what you have stored up in your own life, and now you give it to others who need it. Last week, we talked about two aspects of us opening our mouths. And of course, when they opened our mouth back then, it was to proclaim the truth of God. In Revelation chapter 3, you have the church of the open door. It's called the church of the open door because it was opening its mouth through the word of God to the world. And look at verse 19 again. When virtue goes out of you, it will have a healing effect on somebody. That's what God intended it to do. When you have virtue in you that you have stored up because of what you've got from God and it forms your strength and stability that others don't have, I've tried to build my whole church this way. And thankfully, the majority of you people have, have done that. And that's why you're, you're, you're spread out all over this world and all over this country and all over this city, constantly working with people to try to make them better. But you don't make them better because you're a great person. You don't make them better because of your friendly smile. You don't make them better because of the fact that you're just one of those people that everybody wants to have at a party, much like myself. You, 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 you make them better because of the strength and stability that you have built in your inner self that when they're hurting and they need something, you give it to them and it heals them. You see it, don't you? How many times have somebody come to you and you've worked with somebody and they've had a problem and they have an issue that they're dealing with and you take them to the Word of God? I do it all the time and I know many of you do. You take them to the Word of God and you show them what the Bible says and they all say this, wow, I feel a lot better now. You know what you've done? The virtue that you've had stored up in you, you've given to them and it has a healing effect. And of course, uh, you know, I can't, I never will underemphasize or could I overemphasize the aspect and the importance of ministry to others. 
you know, it's a thing where uh, that's, that's my goal. My goal is to build young men and young ladies, moms and dads, who will become that living sacrifice that will build into the life that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then through that, build the virtue of character qualities of Christ in their life that they're willing to give out to somebody else. You know, virtue, virtue doesn't know people you don't like or people you don't like. If, if Christ's virtue was depending on me, him liking me and me being a good person, I never would have got it. But sometimes we want to hold back that virtue for somebody, well, I don't like this person, I don't like that person. And what does the Bible say? It's, you, you, you need to do good to somebody when you have it within your hand to do it. And people who are hurting need what we have. And holding that back is a wrong concept. And of course, most of God's people in the world today and even people in our own church, you care nothing about ministry. The importance of ministry means nothing to you. You know, I found this is true all my life in Christianity that a lot of people are just takers. A lot of people are just takers. A lot of God's people. You know, and I've talked for a long time. Uh, one of the great concepts that I use many times is the sponge concept. And most women are familiar with sponges because they clean up messes with them, and guys do too. But a sponge is an amazing thing because if you spill something, it has the ability to absorb. And, you know, but the problem with the sponge is is that it can only absorb so much and then it won't absorb anymore. And when a sponge gets to that place in its <laughs> sponge life, <laughs> it's worthless. And God's people who are takers, you just keep taking it in, absorbing it, absorbing it, absorbing it. But it's like the sponge. you got to wring that sponge out before you can pick up any more. And for you and me, we just keep getting it. And let's face it, you get a lot of Bible around here. I don't hold back with giving you what, what, did you say amen, Mason? Did you say amen, Grandpa? Okay. Just say amen, Grandpa. Say it. Thank you very much. Okay. You got to wring it out. And ministry is you filling yourself up with the virtue, but then allowing God through ministry to wring it out of you and to give it to somebody else. And you know what? There's people that all my life in ministry since the day I got in it, back in Ohio, here, wherever I've been, I've seen Christians that were just takers. They cared nothing about really investing the life of becoming a living sacrifice. All they wanted was what they could get. Truman Dollar, I worked with Truman Dollar for many, many, many years, and uh, he, he taught me a lot. And uh, I, uh, I am eternally thankful for all the things that he showed me and, and the times he took helping me. And, uh, you know, and he said something one time that I never forgot. He said a lot of things that I never forgot. He had a wisdom about him because he'd been in it and he'd seen it. And he said to me one time, we were driving down to Springfield and we were just talking back and forth. And he said, he just dropped these little things on me. And I never, I always listened to it because he he, he knew more about it than I did at that time. And he said, he says, you know, Bob, he says, people will never remember what you did for them yesterday. They're just going to want to know what you're going to do for them today. 
And boy, that is so true of God's people. God's people forget all that you've done for them. All they want to know is, what are you going to do for me today? Because they're takers. They're takers. And uh, they're like that sponge. They get filled up with everything, but they never get wrung out, and ministry is wringing it out, taking the virtue that you have and giving it to somebody else. You know, we have here a discipleship program uh, that we uh, offer, and we take people through. Actually, have a discipleship one and a discipleship two, but discipleship one is based about ten lessons, on ten lessons. And each one of those lessons, we look at it as just a fundamental entry into giving you some basic understanding about things. And as I said, six is about the kingdom of God, or uh, God's will and God's plan for your life. But long before we get into the lessons, I teach people that. It really isn't about the lesson, though it is, because people need to know that. But there's, a, there's four goals behind the discipleship. And, you know, you would think that if you have 10 lessons, if you did a lesson a week, you'd be done in 10 weeks. In my mind, and I tell people this all the time, you're, you're done with discipleship, not when you hit the last lesson, but when you've accomplished these four goals in it. And the first goal, obviously, is to establish them in the Word of God. They're all basic fundamental things that every Christian to just get saved needs to learn. That's why I encourage everybody to go through discipleship. The second goal is to establish them into our church. That would be to get them into a prayer group, you know, get them into Bible Institute, uh, whatever, uh, help them, uh, you know, navigate through all the things that we do here, get them into the sports program uh, that we used to have, uh, get them into all the things that, uh, you know, that uh, are connected with our church. Uh, the third goal is to establish them with the people in our church. And it's a thing where you will, you know, you'll, you'll bring them to an events, you'll have get-togethers and bring them in with people for them to get to know. And generally just making everything, I call it the Christian shoehorn effect. But the fourth goal will be to establish them in the ministry of this church. And that brings it full circle. When somebody gets discipled and they finish that, I usually will give that person who just discipled them somebody else to disciple. Or many of you, I don't really give anybody anymore. You pick your own, you get your own people. You're going to town on it. And what you do is you'll get somebody and you'll say, Bob, is it okay? I got this so-and-so at work or this person's coming to church. Can I disciple them? And I will say, absolutely. And I will say, take the person that you just finished discipling and bring them on board to be a part of your discipleship team and let them teach maybe one or two lessons that are easy. Why do I do that? Because I want to bring you full circle. And when I'm done with you in discipleship, I want to find you right where you need to be, and that was in the good work that God began in you, and bring you right back into the ministry because the ministry is people. And that's the way it has to work. You know, in the book of Acts, which really forms a great pattern, Nowhere in the New Testament Christianity do you find a Christian who has not put three things in their life. And these are the three things that I look for. And uh, first of all, all of them were baptized. First thing they do in the New Testament when they get saved, they get baptized. And uh, the second thing is that they all join a New Testament local church. There isn't one of them that's just out flapping in the wind. And the third thing you do uh, is they all minister uh, and do God's work through that church. Those are the three things that I look for. We have a lot of people, you know, that uh, are flapping out there on their own and they, they get all these crazy ideas about God and the Bible and, and all this stuff. And, and it, it, to me, <clears throat> you know, 
credibility about what somebody, uh, somebody's credibility determines on how serious I take what they're talking about. And if I have somebody that's got this great thing about the Bible, and yet they're, in, they're under the accountability of no church, they're under accountability of no pastor, um, and they're not making themselves accountable to the structure, and yet you've got some great thing that you want to lay on the world, Christian world, your credibility is shot with me. And I, I, I wouldn't waste five seconds with somebody like that. And the reason is, is because they have violated the basic fundamental scriptures that takes them out of whatever they think they got to say. But the bottom line is, what it proves is that these kind of people always pick and choose out of the Bible what they want. And I got no use for that. Building virtue in your life is found again in a little simple format in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, where it's a simple formula. He says, the day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. And then the rest of your life, you build up on that foundation to three things. Well, really, there's six things, but three good things. We won't worry about the bad things. The first one, he says, is you build on a gold. The second one is you build on a silver. And the third one is precious stone. Now, when you go back to the Bible, when you look that up in the Bible, God represents the, gold represents the deity of Christ. So the first thing you build on that foundation is who he is. Silver is the price of redemption all through the Bible. So the second thing you build on it is what he did for you. And I'm going to tell you right now, <clears throat> there lies the secret to getting the virtue of Christ and the qualities in your life. And when you do, the third thing you build on that foundation is precious stones. That's people. And my point is this. You can't get to know who he is and can't really understand what he did for you and not tell somebody else about it. And the reason why you're not involved in ministry today, nor will you be, is because you've never built those three things on your foundation, if you even have a foundation. <laughs> Now let me say this about virtue. When virtue goes out of, your, out of you, when you're teaching or you're preaching or you're ministering to somebody, it will fatigue you. You'll get tired. Uh, giving it out will drain you, especially if you do it on a, on a heavy load. If you teach somebody the Bible and you go you know, a couple of hours with them, you're probably pretty tired when you're done, or at least you feel like you know, something's went out of you. And that's why verse 19 says that Christ feels it going out of him. He knows. There's a place in the Bible where a lady just reached up and touched the hem of his garment, and he knowed immediately that somebody had touched him because he said virtue went out of him. It, it, virtue drains you. You know, you're tired after teaching or preaching a long time. And uh, as you get older, you learn how to build it up, and you can do multiple things, but you know, it, still, it goes out of you. I always looked at us as Christians like a, like a portable battery charger. And, you know, but, you know, you and I jumpstart people. And we are a portable battery charger. But you know as well as I do, you can only jumpstart so many cars and then you need to be recharged yourself. And, uh, you know, this is the renewing of your mind, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is being filled with the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5, 18. This is the difference between the great doctrinal teaching on the uh, uh, indwelling Holy Spirit of God. That's what happens the moment you get saved. He comes to indwell. He seals you. But then on a daily basis, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. <clears throat> That's called the infilling where the indwelling is eternal, uh, an eternal thing, the filling is a daily thing. 
and we are to keep ourselves on the charger 24-7 so we can jumpstart anybody who's got a dead battery, so to speak, spiritually speaking. And the woman here, her greatest quality is her virtue. And the rest of the chapter, as we'll see in the weeks to come, is about her nothing more than giving it out to others. And by doing that, with getting the verses in Philippians and the verses of Romans chapter 12 and understanding God's will and God's uh, plan and understanding the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, we now find the defining of the work of God in our lives as a living sacrifice. Then it says in verse 10 that her price is far above rubies. The key word here will be price. Price far above rubies. Of all the precious gems and stones, uh, there is one that is set apart from all the rest, and that's the pearl. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, inspirationally, that pearl of great price is the church, you and me. And the Bible says that the price tag was far above rubies. And that's because the quality that sets a pearl apart from uh, all the other gems is that a pearl is a living organism. It's alive. I mean, you could take a jeweler or a craftsman and you can take a diamond and you can cut it in half and come part with two perfect diamonds. You can take a ruby or a sapphire uh, and you can cut it in half and you come away with two perfect halves that you can do whatever you want to do. But you take a pearl and you cut it in half, both halves die because it's alive. And we are called lively stones in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. So, you know, when Christ found this pearl, you and me, Bible says that he sold all that he had and, and bought it at a great price. And wow, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was yet rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. You know, and there's a great illustration of this in the Song of Solomon chapter 1. As I've said, Solomon had a thousand wives, and, uh, you know, he could only find one that had virtue. And, you know, and, and, and when he writes about her in the Song of Solomon, and, of course, the last chapter here in 31, but it, she has no name. And when, every time you find some story in the Bible where a woman or somebody has no name, the reason he does that is so he wants you to put your name in there. I mean, that's just simple. And yet, when you go to Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 6, you'll find that she's a black woman, which has led a lot of people to believe that based on the interlude that you have in the Bible there, that it was the Queen of Sheba. And, of course, there's no proof to that, but I will tell you this. Um, in Acts chapter 8, when the black Ethiopian eunuch was going to Jerusalem uh, to look for Solomon's temple, he's coming out of Africa and uh, he's obviously heard the stories that she went back and told how many, many centuries before that. So who knows? But anyway, she's black. And, uh, you know, and yet she's a pearl. And a black pearl is the rarest of all the pearls. One time I asked a jeweler, you know, I asked him about pearls. And I said, there is a thing as a black pearl. And I remember asking him, I said, how rare is a black pearl? And without hesitation, he said, oh, one in a thousand. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, oh, never mind. It's the thing, one in a thousand. And that, what a great truth that is. 
that God's people getting the work done, getting God's mind, wisdom, and understanding, unfortunately, probably is no more than one in a thousand. And that's why it's hard to find virtue. And boy, does that answer a lot of questions. Being filled with God's virtue and giving it out to others, the job of every child of God. Now, let me say this. In life, there will be many issues that we have to face. And, you know, when we don't understand the work that God has called us to do, those issues will pull us off the job. For us today, with all we're facing with the virus and all that's going on in the country and our world, <coughs> um, we're at a defining moment. And, and I'll tell you, uh, what you're seeing is probably only the beginning of trouble. So I said earlier, Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says that this old world is groaning. She's been abused, she's been beaten up, she's been misused, and she's tired. And she's about ready to give it up. And you know, God's people are so weird because the fact that they have no work, they have no real relationship, they've never built the good, acceptable, perfect Word of God, will of God in their life. And yet if somebody would have, and I, this happened, I mean, I got, I don't know how many people you know, when the Super Bowl came, there were people that got tickets to the Super Bowl and, and how excited they were. Now, how excited would you be if you got a front row seat to the Super Bowl right there where the game is going on? You would be ecstatic and you'd tell everybody about it and you'd be the happiest guy in the world and that's all you could think of, dream of, and be part of. But yet as a Christian, in the time that we live, God has allowed us to have a front seat on the front row of the end of the world as we know it. And you're concerned about it. You don't like it. You know why? Because you've never taken the sacrifice that he did for you and applied it to you being a sacrifice for him. So your personal world now has been impacted, hasn't it? Your personal little life now has been discomforted. And you don't like it. It didn't matter that his world was discomforted when he hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why has forsaken me? You have a little discomfort now because of what we're going through. You're done with it. We have a defining moment in our world today, and I, I'll tell you uh, what you're seeing is probably only the beginning. And I must confess to you, and I, please, I don't mean this. I know you got, we got sick people in this city, in our own church, and older people who need to be very, very careful. Uh, getting this virus is just like you've got to be careful getting the flu or some other respiratory ailment. It'll, it'll kill you, and you've got to be very, very, very careful of it. I get that. But honestly... I must confess to you, the idea of a Christian sheltering in place is offensive to me. It really is. And I get it. There's no question today that 99% of God's people live their lives in fear, and fear rules the day in their world because they don't understand the sacrifice that God made for them. How are you going to put yourself at risk? I mean, I understand that. And again, you older folks and the older people who, I get it, man. Stay home, stay alive. But I'm telling you, and I, I'm not saying you break the law. I'm not saying that you, you, you do something foolish. No civil disobedience. Romans chapter 13. I get it. But I want to tell you something. If the work of God is real in our lives, how do you just stop and shelter in place? I, I don't understand that. It's the difference in my mind. And I've been driving churches when I see it on marquees. 
closed for further note till further notice. Now I'm going to be honest with you. This thing could go on for a year or two years. And you know we look at the disease, but the Im- impact is is in every aspect of our life. I, it's safe to say. Listen to me. It's safe to say that six months ago, three months ago, life on planet Earth as we once knew it is never going to be the same again. I mean, I'm just telling you that. And for me, it's the difference between a work for God, which most churches have, or a work of God, which very few churches have. And when it's a work of God and not a church for God, then the work has to adapt. It has to it, it has to adapt to any circumstances. It has to redefine how it does things. The idea is we throw up our hands and everybody hide under the bed is not the answer to the world today. And I get it. You got to be careful. I understand. I carry two masks in my bag when I'm driving around and, you know, uh, I'm careful I don't wear them when I go into the bank. But, I, but it's a thing where, you know, if I go to some place and they say you got to have a mask, I'll put one on. I don't like it. I had one on the other day, and, and I had it upside down. Didn't even know I had it on right. You know, the thing you push on your nose was on the bottom. So I just tied it around my chin. I thought that worked pretty good. It, but you do what you got to do. And it's a thing where, you know, it, it, Christianity, when it's a work of God, will carry on in any time of trouble. You, you have to follow through. We can't just say that he, be, he began a good work in us until life got really tough. God's work in any circumstance, anywhere in history, God's work will always find a way. I, I told the people Thursday night about uh, Mary Reed. I, I wonder how Mary Reed, what she would think about what we're all facing today. And you know who Mary Reed was? She lived from about 18... Uh, uh, 54 up to 1943. And Mary Reed decided to be a missionary to the lepers in India. Now, how much more dangerous can you get in a disease than going to a leper colony? And I suspect their favorite song was, What's Eating You? But I don't know. But the bottom line is, did you like that, Jamie? Okay, you did. You did. Okay, get a little smile on your face. Okay, good. And she goes into this leper colony, and she spent all her life there. How many of God's people today would just, oh, think that is so awfully terrible? How could you ever do that? What if you get leprosy? Well, okay, here it comes. She got leprosy. Mary Reed was obviously one of those rare people that thought, and understood that the sacrifice that God made for her was reasonable for the sacrifice she had to make for him. Boy, where are God's people at with that? How about Bernice Lee, 1907? She did the same thing, missionary to the lepers. I think the Waldensians during the Black Plague, 100 million people dead in Europe. Not like we got now, not, I mean, this is a penance to what happened in the Black Plague. They're saying today that out of every 100,000 people, only 90 people die. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? 
when in Europe the Black Plague swept across with no antidote, nothing to fix it, and a hundred million people died. There, was more, there wasn't enough people alive left to bury the dead. Did the Waldensians say, we ain't doing this? They understood that God's work always finds a way. And we are not responsible for the cards that get dealt in a world that's facing God's judgment. But we are responsible that God began a good work in us and we've got to find a way to do that work. I I think of the terrible times of the Inquisition where hundreds and thousands of people were ripped out of their homes in the middle of the night And when you went to church back then, you just didn't get a little slap on the wrist and a citation. You got put in and got tortured. Your kids got thrown in to eat alive by pigs while you had to watch it to to deny Christ. And yet they went to church. The work went on. I I think of Paul where he said in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9 and 10, that we had the sentence of death on us, but he did the work. And I'll be honest with you, in one way, and I know this is just me, and I'm about as weird as a $3 bill, but in one way, shutting down the churches in the country was a great idea because it defines each of us. It defines each of us. We now, we, we, will we carry on finding a way with what the government does give us or what God allows us, or will we shelter in place? God's work never stops. It's God's people who stop. When it's real, it's your zeal. And the real proof of what we have, the real proof of what we have is, is, is not when everything is going good. And there's no risk at coming to church. There's no risk at being in the same building. There's no risk of going out. You know, that's not the real proof of Christianity. The real proof of what you and I have, the virtue, the good work that we have in us is defined when everything goes to hell in a handbag. And I don't know what a hell in a handbag really is, but it sounds good. My mama used to say it all the time. Is it going to hell in a handbag? My mom didn't even have a handbag. But if you'd ask my dad, he'd say, well, living with her is like hell in a handbag. I wasn't going to get into that. Hey, I guarantee you, I'm telling you right now, across this city, across this country, maybe in our own church, there were people who will never come back to church. They never will. They're going to be afraid all of their life. And hey, this thing, as I said, could last two years. You might as well get over it. The way of life that we once knew, it is gone. There'll be no packed crowds at the Super Bowl or the Royals games. The most saddest part, there'll probably be no more hot dogs. It's a thing, no more nachos. It'll be a thing where, you know, there'll be no, there'll be no more, there'll be no more high school football games. There'll be no more track games. There'll be no the kids, be no more graduation deals. It'll all now going to change. When you fly on an airplane, you're going to wear a mask. There's going to be a bulletproof window between you and the, and the next person. And it's, it, it's all going to change. But we will emerge out of this with maybe less people that we came into it with, but we will we will persevere and we will come out much stronger because the work of, God will go, work of God will go on. We will adapt 
We will readjust. We will, we will do whatever we got to do, and we'll let God be God and look for the areas where God opens it up for us to do what we can do. And what we are facing right now is a redefining of life as we know it. The redefining of America and Americans' way of life. If you look back just a few short 30, 40 years, you see it. You saw the process. In 9-11, when the Twin Towers went down and the Flight 93 went into the Pennsylvania woods from that point on, it redefined life in America. When all the school shootings took place, and boy, how terrible and tragic those are, Sandy Hook and all those places, it redefined everything in America for our kids going to school. And now this great global pandemic, it's redefining everything. A redefining of life. And you know, it's comical to me, five, six, seven years ago, even a year ago, I'd get up and I'd preach about the coming this and coming that and how we're going to have to have some tough times, go through some time. Amen, Brother Bob, amen. But when it comes, where are you at today? You're sheltering in place. I preached to you for almost 50 years that this was coming. Really? Because the job of God has for us doesn't quit just because the situation gets tough. And I told you Thursday night as the child of God, we don't find a way around this. We find a way through it. We can let this time redefine America. We can let this time redefine the world as we know it. But we as God's people should never let it redefine who we are or the work that God has called us to. A workman which needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God's called us to a work. God's work will find a way. For 17 years in this church, I've tried to, every message I've preached, everything we've done, everything I've tried to gear this thing to is to build that virtue in you that when the world was hurting and the world was cracked and it all fell apart, that we would not. But when you really never had a real work of God in your life, I understand it. I said when this whole thing began to unfold that pe God's people, I said, God's people who have no stability in life before all this happened will certainly have no stability in life after it happens. And they will always let fear of what's going on around you override what God wants us to do. Because fear will blind you. And God's people won't be back and the work of God most notably when not doing nothing when you were here. So what's to come back to? There's no urgency for most of God's people in churches today. They're not doing anything. It's a thing where, you know, so there's no urgency. If you have a work of God in your life and you're doing what God wants you to do and that is the predominant thing in your life, you're going to find a way. But shelter in place is going to be on T-shirts, I guarantee you. Sell them in a bookstore. You respect it all. You're foolish if you don't. When I saw this coming and there was no, no way around it and there was no vaccine for it, 
I realized my job and my responsibility, and I did two things. It's the only two things I could do. The one thing I does, did is wash my hands 100,000 times a day. My fingernails are not real. They're fake because they all came off about a week ago. The second thing that I did was to bolster my immune system by eating everything I could find that did exactly that because that's the only way you can fight it. And, uh, you know, hey, God is either in charge or he is not. You live your life like he is. And somebody would say, well, what if you get it? He's still in charge. Ask Mary Reed. Listen, I said this Thursday night. I'd rather get it doing something for him than never get it and having nothing, nothing for him. I'm just telling you. You know, and I, I, I want to I show you what Paul said here in closing. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If there's ever a verse or a passage or two verses that we need today to help put steel back in our backbones, to get you to get into a team, get part of the process, because at some point the, the door's going to open a little bit and we're going to be able to go back to an, uh, some kind of work. And we'll be able to open up the things that we can't right now, and at some point, we've got to be ready for that. So here is the verse for you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, but we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised the dead. Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver. Now, there it is. He says we had the sentence of death on us, just like a lot of us think that we do today. Tough time for Paul, much tougher than ours. And you don't see him quitting. You don't see him ever sheltering in place. You know what he said? Three great things here. He says we're going to trust in not ourselves, but we're going to trust in God who delivered us from such a great death. Past and doth deliver, present, in whom shall we trust that he will yet deliver. There's tomorrow for you. If you don't take those three promises and realize that he's God of God to deliver you, he delivered you past, he'll deliver you today, and he'll deliver you tomorrow, in whom we trust and not ourselves. Now that's where we should be. I mean, a pandemic of 100,000, you know, people dead in the United States, probably going to go 150 by the end of the summer. People are not going to quit dying from it. If you look at the statistics of who is dying from it and the places, it puts a lot of light onto it for you. But they, the news media doesn't want to give you any peace. They want to scare you. Our economy is shut down because of that. 33 million people in America out of work, almost 15%, and adding 3 million every week. The lockdown, which is beginning to recede a little bit, but the lockdown, and the people who are revolting and the riots and, and going to the, uh, against it. And now we have the meat shortage, the meat packing plants, or or shutting down because of the workers that are getting it and they can't work. And so now when you go to Hy-Vee, you can only get four packs of meat. 
and you can only, everything is limited. And last but not least, if that wasn't enough, now I heard last week that killer hornets are invading the United States. They call them murdering hornets, whose sting is 10 times worse than, than the average hornet, just like the coronavirus is 10 times worse than the average flu. And they're invading. And yes, they came from the Middle East too, or China. And here they are, big suckers, invading America. And they say that they started and are sweeping across America, and if something isn't done, Imagine being chased by a big hornet. Now, hornets are crazy. I want to tell you a story real quick here. Years ago when I was in Ohio, me and a bunch of guys were down in this backwater swamp where we used to get turtles and frog legs. And over here, we all had AR-15s. And over here, about 100 yards away, was this huge hornet's nest. Big gray, I mean, that big. Ever seen them? They're huge. And it was hanging in a tree. Well, we're young and dumb and stupid. So we decide we're going to unload on this hornet's nest with our AR-15s. We all had 30-round mags, you know, and six, four, five mags in your pocket. And so we lined up, and everybody was a good shot, and we were ripping that hornet's nest. I mean, them AR-15s were just tearing out. And all of a sudden, this dark cloud come out of that hornet's nest. I mean, there was a lot of hornets in there. Now, you know as well as I do, if you've got a gun, a bunch of guns, you can shoot a bullet through all the time. What are you going to kill, two hornets? And you may not believe this, but those hornets will find their way back to whoever is doing the damage to them. And it was like they come out of that thing and they were swarming. It was almost like they were coordinating. And then all of a sudden, that whole thing started coming to where we were. We sheltered in place. <coughs> We got out of there, man, and got to the cars. They lost us somewhere in the process. That was the dumbest thing we ever did. No, no, it wasn't. It was one of the dumbest things I ever did. But my point is, we got pandemic. We got unemployment. We got the lockdown. We got the meat shortage. We got, now you go into a, the restaurants are closed. I mean, it ain't ever going to be the same. It's going to be where you got to go out, wait in your car, Till 10 people leave and then they're going to text you, you can come in. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And you got to wait to go into the store. There's a line six feet apart. You go to the grocery store. Now you got, you got, it's like a highway, one way places. And now you got the killer hornets invading America. If this isn't the plague and pestilence on a biblical proportion, I don't know what is. And the question is, in spite of all that, are you on the job? Are you sheltering in place? He hath begun a good work in you and will perform it in the day of Jesus Christ, and there's no exit clause in that. He says there's no discharge from this war, whether it's a pandemic or a bunch of hornets chasing you down the road or whatever. There's no discharge. God began a job. And our time right now, looking at everything around us, knowing what we know in the Bible. I'm not saying that right now in this time is the beginning of the end. But I am telling you that it's probably the end of the beginning. And the final grains of sand are falling through God's hourglass. And we as God's people were saved to do a work. 
and we are the last workers who go in, and we're in the last part of that shift. I'm telling you now, get in a group, get in a team, get going back into it because, well, Paul told the church at Galatia in chapter 6, verse 17, in his closing to them, he said, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hey, if you're in the fight, if you're doing the work, you're going to have some bruises. This old world is going to leave some marks on you. My advice to you is don't go to heaven without some marks of this world being left on you and some bruises because you were in the fight. This church will finish the work of God's called us to do with you or without you. A real work of God will allow God to show you the way, focusing on what He has given us, not looking back and whining about what we don't have anymore. We have to adapt. We have to change whatever tactics we have to change. We have to keep the work going because we are the last workers in the last minutes of the last hour to do the job that he saved us for and began in us. And we now, all of us, need to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God as we do the work of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the good folks that are tuned in. And thank you for, Lord, the Word of God that will guide us through this time. Lord, I can't speak for everybody. Wouldn't even try to. I can only speak for me. You began a good work in my life and speak for my family. You began a good work in my life and my family's life. All my kids are saved. All my grandkids are saved. Uh, Lord, uh, I got the two greatest son-in-laws on the planet. And all our families are together and you've blessed us. Uh, with that great, uh, great uh, thing, Lord, and uh, and we just have such a great um, ministry together, and we know, Father, that uh, no matter what, we will never quit. And I know that in this church, there's a host of men and women who are who are going to take up and take the stand, and we'll work together. We'll have to find a way to change what we do to get what we get done, and Lord, we'll do that because we understand this is a work of God and not a work for God. And God's people have no business sheltering in place. We have the business of doing God's business, but just finding a different way to do it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.